0: When you're watching a race, your eyes are constantly drawn to the edges of the screen. You find yourself looking at lap times, how quick are the cars going, who set the best time? These minutes, seconds and microseconds are crucial to every single race. But how did people keep time during the early days of motorsport? How did timekeeping evolve and revolutionise racing? Well, the undisputed king of timekeeping, Jean Campiche, has all the answers. We sat down with Jean to talk about how timekeeping and technology transformed motorsport forever. Jean himself helped some of the most legendary Formula 1 teams dominate racetracks in the 1970s and 80s. So reset your stopwatch and relive the timekeeping revolution with Jean Campiche. You can also watch the video interview on our website. Just click on the link in our show notes. We started the interview by asking Jean about the early days, his passion for technology and motorcycle racing. I'm Théo van den Bruyke. Welcome to The Edge, a podcast by Taikhoia.
1: I went to a secondary school,
2: followed by a technical college, where I learned a bit about mechanics and the uh, beginning of electronics. And after that, I went to an engineering university in Lausanne and trained as an electronic engineer, which became extremely useful to me throughout the rest of my life. But the moment my studies ended, I was drawn to the immense passion I carried in my head and my heart, motorcycle
1: racing. My
2: dream was to be a works driver or factory driver, just like the renowned multiple war champion Giacomo Agostini.
1: commence mes années de, de competition, j'en ai fait six en fait. And so
2: began my years of competing. I competed for six in fact in different categories, which I feel I can say with a little pride. Because during those six years I always managed to score points in the world championships. And it was only the first ten who got any points. So without saying I accomplished my dream, I did at least get to an acceptable level. Above all, I enjoyed myself.
1: After six
2: very tough years of work, of preparing the motorcycle, building, engineering, modifying, etc., of falls where I had to recover from small injuries and so on, I got to 1972 with empty pockets. I mean, I had no more money. And by then, I'd also started to say to myself, If I can make a living motorcycle racing, I'll carry on. If not, then I need to ask myself, how do I continue my career? Because without sponsorship, it was impossible to find sufficiently competitive motorcycles to get great
1: results.
2: One day, I was at my place, and uh, as a break from thinking, I read the newspaper and saw an article. It read, Hoyer, looking for a timekeeper for a famous racing team in Italy. This person must do a little PR and needs to be a good salesperson. And they must speak a few languages, particularly Italian. So I applied, and the initial round led to a competition between 45 applicants. Then it was down to five, and finally down to two. And I was fortunate enough to be selected, despite my Italian being very, very poor back then.
1: I was chosen
2: because, in fact, all my motorcycle competing meant that I knew all the heads of the circuits, and meant I'd met some important figures within the world of sponsorship at major events. And on top of that, I had an unbridled enthusiasm for these kinds of competitions. And so I was chosen. It was the start of my work. I'd landed, landed at It was the beginning of 1973 and officially the beginning of the adventure. But in fact, it was just the continuation.
1: Et le début de l'aventure, en fait, c'est continué.
2: Hoyer wanted to test me for six months with the uh, Ferrari team. That was the first key thing. Hoyer had a technical partnership with the Ferrari team from 1961 to 1969. Why bring up this technical partnership? Because Enzo Ferrari was looking for a company which would be capable of developing measuring devices to measure acceleration, braking, and the speed of different cars and in Hoyer he found a company that specialized in timekeeping for stopwatches dashboards used for rallies and of course in innovation with new technologies new ideas dynamic and motivated basically a company with its foot on the gas and above all innovative so the first 6 months went very well
1: et donc les premiers 6 mois sont très bien passés
2: After about six months, Jack Hoyer called me into his office, and he said, Jean, look, we've just renewed the contract with Scuderia Ferrari. Are you keen to carry on working for us, or do you want to go back to your former life, racing motorcycles? And so from there on, you could say, I fell in love with Formula One and endurance racing cars. At that time they had endurance racing cars too. I was still on the track, but now I was in the pit lane. I mean, on the other side of the fence, and it wasn't always easy to begin with. I remember very well the first competition I went to do the timekeeping for Ferrari was Vallolunga. It was the first time I took the plane to travel down from Geneva to Italy. I got there and Ferrari had already arranged the equipment. The famous timing device developed by Hoyer. The development of it had begun at the beginning of the 60s. It was finalized in 1962. So I had the pleasure of arriving at a company which already had a device, which was practically finished and ideal for measuring the cars' times. And in terms of timekeeping, you've got to picture of what was involved. The Lunga is a six hour race, and it means following all the cars for six hours. I mean, Not all the cars in the race, but the cars which are fast enough to compete with the
1: Ferraris. Being so concentrated, that you
2: can't even go to the toilet. So you can't really drink much. You have to be very focused on your work. And in terms of the setup, I can sum it up like this. There's a printer that's about this wide, this high, and this deep. It was a brand that was already known in Switzerland, called Precisa. And inside, there was already a part of it that was electronic. This printer was connected to two or three keyboards. Each keyboard had five keys, like push buttons. Each of these keys could be programmed with a number for a car. And so, even from these early days, if I had only two keyboards, that actually allowed me to track ten cars, which wasn't easy. So, my job was to identify the cars that arrived on the track, passed in front of the box, and to give the most precise timing impulse possible by touching the corresponding key. Always trying, of course, to be as exact as I could
1: be est de donner le plus précisément possible une impulsion de chronométrage en appuyant sur la touche correspondante en étant bien sûr le plus précis possible. Alors il euh, y a une anecdote. Au début, j'avais deux claviers pour dix voitures. So here's Donc a story.
2: Peu... At the start, I had two keyboards for ten cars. When I became a bit more of a well maestro and had more experience. I could manage as many as 15 cars, mostly in Formula 1, because Ferrari had made racing prototypes in 1963. I can remember my arrival very well. This was the era of Jackie X at Ferrari and Arturo Mazzario. And that year, Ferrari was focused on endurance races, but hadn't yet competed in a full Formula 1 championship only part of it. So I was already used to my work timekeeping for the endurance races. The six hours during Lunga Valley, the 1,000 kilometers of Nürburgring, the 1,000 kilometers of Monza, and the toughest one, the 24 hours of Le Mans. With that one, 24 hours long, it's not possible to keep going without drinking or relaxing. So I took a friend with me who worked a bit in technology, who understood the timekeeping setup and assisted me. I remember it so well. It was between 11 o'clock at night and midnight, and I took a break for just under an hour, only to carry on working again at the end of the 24 hours. Yeah, I remember that, mainly because it was 23 hours of total concentration, and that was hard. Now, timekeeping during that period was of the utmost importance for the racing teams. The endurance races for Ferrari already relied upon counting the laps. It wasn't just about measuring timings. It was also about the number of laps, first lap, second lap, third lap, etc. So precision was of course key, but so was reliability. Because when suddenly the fuel tank is empty or the tires are starting to deteriorate, you have to have counted the laps to know when to stop the car, when to service it, as it were. And you have to take into account that at this time the TV system with the monitors wasn't in place. So the only way to know the lap times was to have a stopwatch to time a car, maybe two cars, etc. And the system developed by Tag Hoyer. Known as Hoyer back then, excuse me, was really a system which allowed us to have automatically calculated to the one hundredth of a second the number of the car, the number of laps it had done, and the timings on the printer. And this setup was enormously useful, of course, for the endurance races. But when we crossed over to Formula One, it became even more important.
1: Et euh, cette installation-là euh, servait énormément, bien sûr, aux courses d'endurance. Mais au moment où il y a eu le passage en Formule 1, c'était encore plus important. so why was
2: timekeeping so key for formula one because well let's look at a landmark here 1974. the ferrari team had lauda and records only and we had all the championship to track and time and not only that but also a fierce struggle between the two drivers the young incumbent lauda and the shall we say, more experienced Regazzoni. And in 1974, Regazzoni was really acting like the champion of the world. So, let's not prolong the suspense. Unfortunately, he lost the championship by three points at the end of the race, which meant everyone was grieving because he was obviously an incredible Swiss driver who was extraordinarily generous and had a remarkable character. And I was pretty heartbroken in 1974
1: for poor Regazzoni, who'd lost his title. Now,
2: timekeeping is important, and not only for the team. Imagine that during the qualifying rounds, one often had to wait, I'm being kind here, about half an hour before receiving the official results from the official timekeepers. Why? Because back then, there were no computers. The first computers arrived at the end of the 70s, therefore the timekeeping was often done by national federations who used timekeepers who were all delighted to be there at the Formula 1 Grand Prix. But as they weren't used to following the championship, these people weren't familiar enough with the cars to recognize them easily, so there were errors. We could see mistakes being made, sometimes they identified the wrong cars. They believed records had crossed the finish line, but in fact, it wasn't Recordsoni; it was louder. And on top of that, because there weren't any computers, they were making their calculations with their hands, if you like, with their minds. So, someone could be forgiven for occasionally making a mistake in their calculations, maybe to the 10th of a second, maybe even by a second. This meant that sometimes the official results were circulated. I get them. And three or four times during the first few years, I had to go over to the official timekeeper to say, knock, 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 excuse me, I'm Jean Campiche. I was very well known because we were the only team who had an electronic timing device for measuring the car's lap times. And I arrived with an electronic timekeeping strip with all the results printed on it, so I could go to the timekeeper and say listen, something odd is going on because you've missed a timing for Regazzoni or missed a timing for Niki Lauda, and I'm a bit surprised because it's when they made their best time. So he'd check his timings against the Le Mans Centigraph timing sheet, and then effectively, sometimes, the timekeeper had to admit that I was right, that Hoya was proved right about precision. That was crucial. So that's one of the stories that explains the importance of timekeeping.
1: J'avais raison, que hier donnait raison à la précision, ça c'était important. Et donc ça c'est un petit peu des anecdotes qui expliquent l'importance du chronométrage. It was a time
2: when timekeeping had really evolved and we started to have monitors in the boxes for each team. But the beginning of timekeeping was painful because even if now there were fewer calculative errors or none at all because we were there already working on it, there were still often technical problems. Sometimes the images on the monitors were interrupted or interfered with by radio waves, etc so that all the results began vibrating on the screen. There were times when there were power failures, so timekeeping was tricky right from the start. I'd say the biggest advances were made with the help of electronics at the end of the 70s, when Hoyer worked hard to develop a completely automated system of timekeeping, totally automatic.
1: Full automatic, automatic, That meant that every
2: car was equipped with a little transponder. A transponder is a tiny transmitter which says, I crossed the finish line at this point. And the times were measured by a timing device, which was then connected to a computer, which were... And these computers were huge. It was crazy. We were at the Nivelle circuit in Belgium to do a demonstration of Formula One, the Nivelle racetrack. I remember it very well. We had a station wagon which was a Volvo with a car already full with all the timing material and behind it the caravan with the computer. The computer was a big slab measuring nearly five feet across, over three feet high and over five feet deep. It was enormous and we had this demo in Nouvelle which was very convincing. The great Bernie Eccleston wasn't there yet, he was at a high level, but the French Motorsport Federation were there. There are officials from the International Federation, and it was something that would have been amazing for Formula One. The problem was
1: money. The system proved that it could work for the cars that were on test on the circuit.
2: The cars being tested on the Nivelle circuit have proven that the system worked. We knew we needed to standardize this setup. But for that, there had to be money. And this was at the end of the 70s. A very difficult time for the watchmaking industry because the Japanese had just entered the market with their quartz watches, very cheap watches, etc. This was causing some serious suffering for the Swiss watch industry. And so Hoyer had a hard time focusing on the development of stopwatches, the development of watches, and unfortunately, let the Ferrari contract go, and let the timing division go, which had been developing the timekeeping devices. So sadly, you could say that the Hoyer timekeeping adventure had come to an end. At the very beginning of 1980, when Hoyer became part of the organization called Swiss Timing. Swiss Timing was an umbrella company for Longines, Omega, and Hoyer. But at the time, These three brands were competitors. Nonetheless, this organization was put together. It was to protect Swiss culture and precision against the Japanese and the Americans, protect against companies like Seiko and Citizen, etc. So, Hoyer became part of Swiss Timing, and I had the pleasure of working within the bosom of this organization during the Youth Olympics at Lake Placid during the Winter Olympics and in Moscow during the Summer Olympics. Hoyer's dream sadly
1: ended there. libre Jack Hoyer
2: had warned me about the difficulties the company was facing at the time. And he said to me, Jean you're free. If you find a job, great, take it. Actually, I had lots of offers from different sectors, but I still felt a strong pull towards motorsports. When an interesting lead at Longines came up, Longines wanted to resume timing at a world championship level. It was the beginning of the real organization of Formula One, with, of course, Bernie Eccleston involved by that point. And during these exciting early days, Longines bought up all the systems developed by Hoyer at the end of the 70s and as a way of carrying on the torch to continue developing and integrating all the systems within Formula One. And then there was the Ferrari contract. It wasn't a given that Jean-Compiche would go to Longines. I was from the Hoyer culture, not the Longines culture. But Ferrari was very clear. They said Longine if you want to sign a contract with us Jean Campisch is a part of the deal because we've got used to working with him for the last 7 years his work is fantastic and we absolutely insist on continuing work with him so i went to longine
1: on veut absolument continuer avec cette personne et donc je suis passé je peux dire un petit peu malheureusement pas la maybe say
2: that unfortunately the business culture there was very different to that at Hoyer. With Jack Hoyer, the dynamism and all I've mentioned, the drive for innovation with research and development always on the table. But Longines was also fascinating work because I still worked a little for Formula One. But in general, it was primarily for Ferrari timekeeping. And that brought to an end the trickier part of my work with a new seven year contract. I did seven years at Hoyer and seven years at Longines. And as you know, perhaps, in 1985, Hoyer was bought over by a company called TAG, Technique d'avant-garde. As I mentioned, Hoyer had his difficulties at the end of the 70s. The company was saved by a cash injection from someone who was very much in love with the brand, because the whole history of Hoyer is absolutely incredible.
1: It was Yves Piaget who put up
2: the money to save the company, so that Hoyo wasn't bankrupted, which would have been a catastrophe. And one day, Piaget, who traveled a lot, met someone called Akram Ogier. He was the famous father who worked for Technique d'avant-garde, TAG. And Yves Piaget said to him, look, You work in agriculture, in agronomy, you work with banking, you work in hospitality, with hotel chains, you work with planes, etc. You have really diversified. Why not take on a watch company with an incredible name and an amazing history? And so it didn't take very long before TAG had decided to buy up 51% of the company. And that, that really gave an incredible boost to the next era after Hoyer, tag
0: Hoyer.
1: And donné un coup d'accélérateur incroyable pour la deuxième période après Hoyer, tag Hoyer. et donc uh, 1985 le partenariat a commencé avec notamment ce partenariat and so in
2: 1985 team. the partnership had started with notably a partnership with the mclaren team because Mansour Auger was a very important person within the McLaren stable and his family was the one that had the money to take care of Hoyer and then I also got back in touch with Tag Hoyer and Tag agreed to rebuild a new timekeeping department which would have an active role in the sports world and when I first came back to Tag Hoyer as a manager in 87 it was for new development
1: manager, development
2: of new devices, timekeeping, development of new accessories like photocell systems, etc. We became official timekeepers in skiing as well, for more notoriety and visibility for the company. That was at the end of the 80s. Meanwhile, I still had all my contacts with Formula One. There was a company, Olivetti, which was in charge of data processing i.e. the technology at the heart of Formula One. And then I heard that Bernie Eccleston was a little bit tired of his relationships and contacts at Longines and that he might be interested in a change of timekeeper. And when I heard that, I could feel the wind under my sails. I told the company, the heads of Tag Heuer, and I said, well, there's an opportunity and we really have to get a move on. And we I remember it very well. It was in '91. We discussed it at Monza, the first contact, etc. And in 1992, Tag Hoyer was the official timekeeper of Formula One, the first Grand Prix in South Africa, in Johannesburg, on the Kyle Army circuit. And that, for me, was extraordinary.
1: C'était extraordinary. But
2: what was even more extraordinary was that Tag Heuer had regained its heights, and much of that is due to the fact that the extraordinary history of Heuer could continue on through the incredible developments in improving precision and reliability of timekeeping within the world of Formula One. Today, when you see the precision of the transponders installed with the cars, the transponder is capable of guaranteeing to within a thousandth of a second when the cars pass the finish line. The idea is to have antennas in the ground which register the passing of the cars from the car's number, but at the same time capable of timing that accurately to within
1: one thousandth of a second précision Et, uh, and in 1995
2: there was an extraordinary innovation, which was the detection of early departures. This meant tiny sensors were installed at each place on the starting line. Every Formula One car was on a sensor. You can easily imagine then that if the car makes any movement, the signal recorded by the sensor varies in intensity. So. That's how we're able to detect if a driver has gone before the lights go out, or the green light. The year after, in '96, the same system was used for pit stops. When the car stopped, it started timing. When the car set off again, we saw how much time was lost during change in the tires. At the time, refueling still took place.
1: So that's
2: where these innovations were incredible for timing. The technology had advanced, but it was reliable now, too. The role was also, finally, we had results on the monitors that were clear. We started color-coding the times. They were in green when the timings were better, purple or red for absolute times, improved times, etc. And now, today, unfortunately, all on private TV channels. You have so much information available with intermediate times, with the speeds, the gaps, all the information you could need to make you excited and ready to watch the famous Formula
1: One Grand Prix.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Edge. Let us know what you thought in the comments, wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe and leave us five stars. It does make a difference. Thank you so much to Jean Campiche for joining us. I'm your host, Theo van den Brucker, and I'll be back next month with another episode of The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. See you soon.